0: A tourist stopped one day at an Indian reservation where he was introduced to an Indian chief who was said to have a perfect memory. This tourist was skeptical, though. He tested the chief. He said, tell me, chief, what did you eat for breakfast on August the 2nd, 1954? Well, the chief quickly answered him, eggs. Well, the man scoffed, sure, everybody has eggs for breakfast. The tourist left unimpressed. Hey, 10 years later, the same tourist stopped off at the same reservation. And as soon as he exited the bus, guess who he saw? That's right, the Indian chief with the perfect memory. The tourist slapped him on the back and he said to him, How, chief? The Indian immediately answered, Scrambled. (laughs) In chapter 10, Paul activates our memories. He takes us on a tour down memory lane. He recalls Hebrew history as an example to us, the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in verse 1, we begin. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. When the Hebrews exited Egypt, they followed a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. And what a sight it was. Obviously, God wanted their eyes fixed on his glory. And they all passed through the sea. I don't care how many times I watch the Ten Commandments, I always get goosebumps when Moses Heston raises his rod and those waters part before Israel's astonished eyes. Imagine having been there to see that miracle firsthand having been an eyewitness. Paul continues, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And here's the first implication of what happened to Israel historically is somehow a type or an analogy of what happens to us spiritually. Just as Israel was baptized into Moses, so we are baptized into Christ. Think about it. We too have a deliverer. His name is Jesus. He led us out of the Egypt of this world. He freed us from sin slavery. And he's done a miracle by parting the waters of forgiveness. We've crossed over into a new life. We're a new nation, a new people. We're under new management. We're now new creations in Christ. Just as Israel was baptized into Moses, now you and I have been baptized into Christ. And in addition, we've all ate the same spiritual food. Now remember how God satisfied Israel's hunger pains. For 40 years, he supplied them the wonder bread, the manna. Psalm 78 verse 25 called it angel's food. I like that. The very first angel food cake. That was the manna. And likewise, we get to feed on spiritual manna. Jesus is the bread of life. He's food for our soul. The word of God, God's word. It's often called honey from the honeycomb. It's too called the bread of life. It sustains our faith. We also have eaten of spiritual food. And then verse 4 and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You know, twice in Israel's wilderness wanderings, God drew water from a rock. The first time Moses was told to strike the rock, he did and water gushed out. The second time, though, God told him to speak to the rock. But Moses was angry at the time. He was frustrated with God's people. He was fed up with all of their complaining. And so, rather than speak to the rock, he struck the rock a second time. He disobeyed and misrepresented God. And for this one act of defiance, God barred Moses from the promised land. Moses looked on the land, but he didn't get in. We read of Moses. He died there on top of Mount Nebo, having never entered the promised land. You know, we read of Moses' punishment, and we wonder sometimes if God wasn't excessive. I mean, did the punishment really fit this crime? That is, until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because here Paul tells us that that rock in the wilderness, that rock was Christ. Apparently, quenching the thirst of a few million people turns out to have been a peripheral issue. God's main objective was to paint a picture of the Messiah. Hey, Jesus had to be struck once on the cross. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was, by his stripes, we were healed. Now, all we have to do is speak to the rock. And God pours the waters of refreshment, of spiritual refreshment, into our hearts. But here's the problem. Moses blew the analogy. The rock only has to be struck once. Now we speak to the rock. Moses struck it twice, thus his punishment. We're told in verse 5, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now most here is an understatement. For it was all but two. Only Caleb and Joshua believed. Everyone else died because of their unbelief. And Paul's point is this. A good beginning doesn't ensure a good ending. Like the Israelites of old, the Corinthians at the time, they too had seen miracles. They also had eaten of the bread of life. They had down many a glass of the spiritual thirst quencher. And yet that won't stop them from dying in the desert if they get arrogant if they stop trusting and following and needing and depending on Jesus. The lesson Paul's teaching them is it's not how we start that matters most, it's how we finish. He goes on, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. For as it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And here Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. While Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting with God, Israel was feasting and dancing around that horrible golden calf. They couldn't wait on God just 40 days before they tried to make a substitute for God. Verse 8 tells us of another failure. He says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, And in one day, 23,000 fell. Hey, you can go back. Read the story of Balaam in Numbers 22 through 25 for all the ugly details. Again, Israel showed their propensity toward idols and lust. And Paul is warning the believers in Corinth not to head down that same path. He says, nor let us tempt Christ, if some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents here now is a reference to events in Numbers chapter 21. Israel complained about God's provision and when God's people are known for their grumbling rather than their gratiti- gratitude then the bite of judgment's not far behind. He says, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. The destroyer. You know there's a Jewish tradition that says that God has a single angel who does all his dirty work. The destroyer is like a divine battleship. You don't want to meet the destroyer in a dark alley. But the surest way to rumble with the destroyer is to grumble about God's provision, murmuring, complaining. You know, it's really just a lack of faith. If we really believe God is in control, we'll stop our belly aching. Well, I'm sure you've heard it said, experience is the best teacher, but it doesn't always have to be your own experience. You know, we keep slamming our heads against the wall when we could be learning from other people's mistakes, and this is why Paul is giving this history lesson. He wants to save the Corinthians from a bruise on the noggin. He says in verse 11, now all these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come you know christians today we need to humble ourselves for what happened to israel can happen to the saints if we don't take heed to the warning at Dachau the Nazi concentration camp there near munich there is a museum of horror at Dachau photos and relics document the atrocities that were done there by to the jews and there is a sign that's posted near the exit. It reads this. Thus, who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. Boy, the same can be said for us Christians. We need to learn these lessons. Read carefully verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Hey, you stay on the high horse, and you'll eventually get bucked off. Reminds me of Jose Cabrero, one of Spain's most brilliant matadors. After thrusting his sword into the bull one last time, Cabrero spun around and he acknowledged the cheers of the crowd. Cabrero didn't realize that the animal was still alive. It made one final lunge and it rammed its horn through Jose's heart. Someone in the crowd should have shouted out, Jose, can you see? Pride has led to many a man's downfall. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Stories told of the Union Pacific Railroad They ran their first line from St. Louis to California, and they built a trestle bridge over a huge, long gorge. To assure safety, the chief engineer, he parked a train with boxcars, loaded down twice their normal payload. He parked this train on top of the trestle bridge. One of the workers was so upset, he shouted, he said, What are you trying to do, break it? The engineer answered, No, I'm showing that it's unbreakable. And this is why God allows us to be tempted, to demonstrate His ability to keep us. And yet God knows our breaking point. He's aware of what we can handle, what we can't. And He promises to keep the temptation within the range of our resistance. At times, He'll temper the temptation. At other times, He'll increase our resistance. And He always provides us a way out an escape hatch. Hey, here are the four truths we learned from verse 13. Here's the four truths we should remember when we're tempted. We're not alone. Everybody gets tempted. It's the price tag for being human. But God is faithful. It's no sin to be tempted. He's there in the midst of our struggle. The temptation is also winnable. That's the third lesson. You can't, but God can. And then finally, there's always a way out. God has an exit strategy even from the temptation you're facing tonight. Well, that's why he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. You remember back in chapter 8, we read that some of the believers in Corinth felt the freedom to, meet, to eat meats that had been sacrificed to idols. That was okay, for the piece of meat is just that. It's a piece of meat. But apparently, other believers had carried their freedom too far. You see, there's nothing to eating a piece of meat that was once sacrificed when you eat it at home, when you cook it on your grill, when you feed it to your family. But when you eat it in the pagan temple with your pagan friends while the priest is performing some pagan ritual over it, while he's uttering some pagan incantation, I mean, at some point in all of this, your faith turns to foolishness. And some of the believers in Corinth had crossed this line. They were taking their freedom too far and they were inadvertently getting sucked back into idolatry. Paul illustrates what happens at the altar of an idol by explaining to us what happens at the Lord's table. He says, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. You see, communion is such a fitting name. For when we come to the Lord's table to eat and to drink, we do just that, we commune with the Lord. A mystical fellowship takes place at the Lord's table. Now, obviously, the bread and the wine, they stay bread and wine. But the act of eating and drinking are acts of faith. They're faith additives, you might call them. They're points of contact where we can release release our faith in Jesus. We reach up and we touch the hem of His garment in the midst of communion. Communion is a special opportunity to fellowship with Jesus. Paul points to the Old Testament sacrifices in verse 18. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Understand, a sacrifice was a spiritual transaction. I mean, you came on the physical side of the altar, but the spirit behind the altar was also present in the Old Testament table temple and at the lord's table the spirit behind the altar was the holy spirit but that wasn't the case in the pagan temples notice verse 19 what am i saying then that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything you see chapter 8 explained to us that the meat sacrificed to the idol was just meat The idol is nothing divine and neither is the sacrifice. But there is a real spiritual entity behind the worship of that idol. You see, when the idolater came to a pagan altar to offer a sacrifice, there was someone there to receive it. And it wasn't just the priest, it wasn't just the idol, it was the demons that were inspiring the worship of that idol. Paul writes this, Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Again, idols are just idols, meat. is just meat. But idolatry is demonic. And the idolatry can involve the meat and the idol. I mean, don't walk into a pagan temple as if nothing spiritual is going on. Oh, no, demons are dancing all over the place. I mean, here's a modern example of what I'm trying to say. A fortune cookie, I mean, is really nothing but a tasty mix of flour and sugar. Has a silly little message inside. No big deal. But if you take that message as a prediction of your future, it becomes a form of sorcery. You're predicting the future apart from the Word and will of God. The message doesn't somehow corrupt the cookie. I'll still eat the cookie, but I'm going to have no part with the prediction. So often, whether something is good or evil depends on its context. Meat is harmless until it's used in a ritual that engages a demon. Likewise, that cookie is harmless until the prediction exposes you to an evil influence if you choose to believe it. Well, notice Paul says in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Understand what had been going on in this church. The Corinthians were free. They knew idols and meats were nothing, but they took it too far. They figured it was okay to go to the family gatherings there in the local pagan temple. When the company had the pagan priests to dedicate the new store, they participated. They failed to grasp the spiritual factors at play. They were flirting with the idolatry as if there was nothing to it. Hey, there is nothing to the idol or to the meat, but the idol worship is demonic. In essence, they were flirting with demons by being surrounded by these things. And you can't follow Jesus and flirt with demons. That's Paul's point. God will get jealous. Notice verse 23, Paul says, Hey, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And here again is what we call the Christian ethic. God gives us carte blanche. We live by love, not by law. And love will determine what's helpful and what edifies. So, if my liberty causes me to fumble my faith or stumble my brother, his faith, then it becomes off-limits to me. Such was the case with the meat sacrifice to idols. He goes on, Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In other words, Paul says, if you're barbecuing for yourself and for your family, then understand the meat is just meat. Go for it. Enjoy it. But, he says, if any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake, But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, and obviously if your host mentions the technicality, it's an issue for him. Suddenly you realize there's a danger that you could be causing him to stumble. Thus, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Again, Paul's point is this. If you're not free to put it down, then you're not free to pick it up. He continues, Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And here Paul is concerned about the Corinthians setting themselves up for unjust criticism. I mean, if my liberty is going to be interpreted by, as a moral lapse or as poor judgment on my part or worse, as a betrayal of Christ, then why should I even go there? You see, as a believer, a primary concern is to protect my own witness. Verse 31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. We should evaluate every activity, every diversion, every duty, every pleasure, by whether it promotes the gospel and builds up the church. This is how Paul lived not just what's allowable, but what was helpful. And this is how Paul can make the statement he does in the first verse of chapter 11. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Hey, can you say that? Well, you can if your goal is to always always participate in what's helpful and in what edifies. Notice verse 2. Now, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Apparently, the Corinthians were doing certain things right. But they did have some glaring problems, notably how they ordered the public assembly of the church. And now for the next four chapters, Paul is going to be addressing some of the abuses that were occurring in their public meetings. And the first issue Paul addresses is are gender roles within the church, verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. We learn from this that obviously authority matters to God. God designates roles and establishes rank. I mean, just a quick peek at nature, and you'll notice that God has created all of life with order and structure. I mean, all chiefs and no Indians isn't order, it's chaos. God definitely has a chain of command, and here it is. God the Father is head over Christ. Christ is head over the man, and man is head over the woman. Note the only decline in equality here is between Christ and the man. The father and son, they're equal in nature, but they're different in the roles that they play. Jesus willingly submitted to the will of his father. He accepted a subordinate role. Likewise, the man and the woman are equal in value and in nature, but they are different in roles. Actually, I'm not sure it's accurate to say that a wife is equal to her husband. Most wives I know are superior to their husbands. It's been said, if you don't believe women are more advanced than men, just watch both wrap a Christmas present. (laughs) I relate to that. A woman's submission to her husband has nothing to do with any sort of inferiority on her part. It's the acceptance of a role that has been appointed by God. Notice verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And this is odd. For when you go to Israel today, you learn that Jews refuse to pray or even step on holy ground without wearing the yarmulke or the skull cap. It's a reminder that there's someone over them, that they're under God. This is why it's strange to hear Paul, a Jewish rabbi, Make the statement, every man having his head covered dishonors his head. But remember here, Paul is not writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles. And Greek custom was the opposite of Judaism. When a man entered a pagan temple to worship an idol, he wrapped his toga over his head. In Corinthian culture, a Christian praying with his head covered would send the wrong message. It would associate him with idols. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now in Corinth, men prayed uncovered, but the woman covered up. The Christian men and Christian women. At the time, all the Oriental women wore long hair. And they wore their hair under a veil. Now the veil they wore wasn't a heavy burqa, similar to what's worn today by Muslim women. No, it was just sort of a light shawl draped over a woman's head. It was a symbol that she was under submission, that she was under the authority of a husband or a father. The only women in Corinth who wore short hair or ventured out into public without a veil were the prostitutes. Now, recall when the woman came to Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. You know, apparently what appalled the Pharisee was that the woman removed her veil and let her hair down. This was a cultural taboo in Israel, as it was in Corinth. Evidently, the Christian sisters in Corinth were enjoying their freedom in Christ to the point to where they thought that they could shed their veils. I mean, this was the first century women's lib. They weren't bra burners. They were veil shedders. You know, here's a sidebar. It's interesting. This liberation of women began among Christians. I mean, nothing has done more for women's rights than Christianity. In the pagan world, in the Muslim world today, even in ancient Israel, women were considered personal property. They were a notch above a slave. It was Christianity, though, that ennobled and elevated women. I mean, Paul writes the wonderful words there in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Boy, that was a revolutionary statement that echoed throughout the ancient world. But recall Paul's point in these chapters. At times... We need to curtail our freedom for the sake of our witness. The Corinthian ladies, they were free to shed their veils, but what message would that send to the surrounding culture? God still had a chain chain of command in the church and in the home. And to throw off a symbol of submission, like a head covering, would be viewed by the surrounding community as this woman bucking God. You know, in 21st century America, customs have changed, but biblical principles have not. Hey, cultural symbols will vary, but creative principles or creation principles, I might say, remain the same. Today, if a woman wears a veil, it has nothing to do with submission. It's either a fashion statement or perhaps she's a Muslim or maybe she's just having a bad hair day. I mean, ladies don't think that you need to start a veil collection for yourselves. But there are certain symbols of submission in our culture that a Christian lady should take seriously. For example, taking your husband's last name. That makes a profound statement. Wearing your wedding ring. Exchanging traditional marital vows. These are all symbols that within 21st century America represent a woman's submission to authority. Paul's point is that a Christian lady is responsible to have a good witness within her culture. Notice verse 6. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Here Paul's getting a bit sarcastic. He's saying if you want to go without a scarf, you might as well shave your head too. They both made the same statement to that Corinthian community. He says, but if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. "...for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man." In other words, there was a deliberate order in God's creative work. Man was created first. And this is so significant. Throughout the Bible, Special rights and prerogatives and authority were given to the firstborn. The firstborn was the head of the family. It was a special honor, but it came with a heavy responsibility. Later, sin will enter the world through Eve, but God holds Adam responsible. You see, in God's setup, the buck stops with the buck. In essence, biblical headship is taking responsibility for stuff that's not my fault. And this is every husband's responsibility. It's loving your wife and kids, even when they make mistakes. I mean, guys, your wife brings baggage into the marriage, but a real man doesn't resent it. He takes responsibility for what's not his fault. He he helps to make the world a better place. He's like Jesus to his wife. He loves her until she's lovable. Now, as if this passage isn't tricky enough, check out verse 10. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Oh boy, the angels? What do the angels have to do with gender roles? (laughs) We're really not sure. Some people, though, have pointed out that the angels have a high regard for rank and order. When Satan stepped over God's chain of command, remember, he got the boot. Apparently, the angels are still interested in the role play between men and women. He says, Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. At home and at church, women are under men. But men should never flaunt their authority. For the men need the women. In fact, without women, there would be no men. Remember, the man isn't greater than the woman. We're different in role, but we're equal in value and in nature. Gender roles, you might say, are an ordered equality. Well, Paul keeps his foot on the pedal here in verse 13. He says, judge judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. (laughs) Wow. I mean, this issue is really turning into a hairy issue, isn't it? Apparently, prior to a shawl, Evidently, prior to any cultural symbol, God had ingrained into our very nature certain symbols of submission, a.k.a. the length of a person's hair. It's interesting how the length of a person's hair can reveal the state of a person's heart. In most cultures, women wear their hair longer than men. I mean, even in Israel today, men trim their hair I mean, Samson stood out because a razor had never touched his head. Apparently, other Hebrew men at the time trimmed their hair. Remember the 1960s? When young men bucked the establishment, what did they do? How did they symbolize their rebellion? They grew their hair out long. In the 1970s, when women rebelled against traditional roles and tried to express their defiance, how did they do so? They did it with short hair. Now, I don't want us to get too hung up on hair. Again, these issues are hairy enough. I mean, some men grow their hair long just because they like it long. They're not making any kind of statement of rebellion. Some women cut their hair short just because it's easier to maintain. And it's also true that the terms long and short are relative. I mean, what is long hair? What's long for you might not be long for me and vice versa. In so many ways, it depends on culture and on the people in the marriage. Since I've been married, I've navigated this by always trying to keep my hair shorter than my wife. Let's, not also, let's also not forget 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It kind of gives us our priority. There we're told, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I don't really think this hair issue is a big deal. All Paul is saying to us, though, is that even nature reinforces God's chain of command. And God's chain of command is a big deal. We need to respect the gender differences and the roles that God has ordained between men and women. I've heard it said this way, Oh, for the day when men were men and women were proud of it. That should be the attitude in every church and in every family. I love how Paul finishes up here with gender roles. Verse 16 But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. In other words, I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to argue about what we've just been taught. It's not Paul's opinion. It's not anybody's opinion. It's God's Word. Verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, remember, Paul is dealing with problems in the public assembly of the church in Corinth. And his diagnosis here isn't very good. He says, it would be better if you guys just close the doors. Your meetings on Sunday do more harm than good. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. I mean, they were so fragmented that the peaceful person stuck out. Notice verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's supper, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. I mean, this is almost comical. The believers in Corinth were getting drunk at the communion table. Actually, there's more to the story here. In the early church, believers gathered on the first day of the week for a churchwide potluck. They called it the agape feast or the love feast. It was a meal followed by communion. But for the Corinthians, their behavior contradicted the name of the meal. There was nothing loving about these gatherings. They fought for first dibs on the food. They drank too much wine at the meal. It was just a free-for-all. There was no love at this love feast. Their practice of the Lord's Supper was leaving the Lord out. Paul writes, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. I mean, if you want to pig out and get sauced, you can do that at home. They didn't need to come to church and make a mockery of worship, make a farce out of true fellowship. You know, the early church was highly populated by the poor and slaves. For many, this agape feast was their only decent meal of the week. They were turning, the Corinthians were turning the love feast into a sham. Verse 23 is what every pastor should be able to say when he stands to preach. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Wow, that's a a great thing. What we give to the people should be what we got from God. Paul says, That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Once it was a little boy, he was participating in his first communion. As he took the tiny little wafer and as he took the little cup, he asked his dad to explain what this was all about. The dad whispered, Son, this is Jesus' last supper. The little boy looked puzzled. He he responded, Boy, they sure didn't give him much, did they? Well, actually, what we take as the bread and the wine was just a small portion of a larger Passover feast. The bread spoke of faith. The wine spoke of pardon. On that first Passover in Egypt, a lamb was slaughtered. Its blood was smeared on the doorposts of every Hebrew house. So that when the destroyer passed by, he saw the blood and he passed over the house. Today, Jesus is our Passover. When his blood is applied to our hearts, God's wrath passes over us. Over the centuries, different views have developed to explain the significance of communion. But to me, its deepest meaning is found in these last few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Recall earlier, Paul said, by going to the altar of an idol, you you create an entry point for the spirit behind that idol. Well, likewise, to eat and drink at the Lord's table, you create an entryway for the spirit of Christ to come into you and work in your heart. Expect genuine communion whenever you participate in communion. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, notice he doesn't say how often, once a week, once a month, doesn't say. He just says, as often. That leaves the frequency of communion up to each church and each individual believer. But as often as you do, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, this was the verse that struck horror in me as a child. The way our church and pastor interpreted verse 27 completely robbed me of any enjoyment I should have had in communion. We were taught that unless you were worthy, unless you were a good Christian, unless unless you put yourself through a rigorous self-examination and confessed all your sin, then you really shouldn't participate in communion. And here's why. The next verse. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, now here was our problem. Here was why we misinterpreted this verse. We probably cut a grammar class somewhere along the line because we mistook an adverb for an adjective. You see, the old King James uses the word unworthily. It's an adverb describing the act of eating, not an adjective relating to the eater. The new King James offers a better translation. It reads, in an unworthy manner. My point is, is that no one can make themselves worthy of taking communion. In fact, the whole point of our salvation is that we're unworthy. If we could be worthy... Jesus would have never had to die. You see, Paul is reiterating what he's already said. Rather than pig out and get drunk, the Corinthians should approach the Lord's table with a humble and a grateful heart. No one is worthy, but we can all come and eat in a worthy manner. Well, notice the last line of verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body, for this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep, or literally they're dead. And I always read this as part of the scare tactic. If you didn't confess all your sin, if you didn't clean up your life, you could get sick, or God might even strike you dead. But notice the phrase, discerning the Lord's body. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us, by Jesus' stripes we are healed. The sacrifice for Christ paid, the sacrifice of Christ paid for our healing. The idea here might be if we run roughshod over the meaning of communion, if we don't discern the Lord's body and don't realize the elements of the bread and the wine represent the work done for the saving and the healing work of our soul and our body, then we might just miss out on an opportunity to be healed. That's why the church members were weak and sick. There was healing in Christ that they had failed to appropriate because of a bad attitude toward communion. Well, he wraps it up. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, the Lord is a father who knows how to spank and correct his kids. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest, apparently there were other issues as well, I will set in order when I come. And there we have 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. Let's pray together before we leave. Father, thank you so much for your your word. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons we've gleaned tonight. And Lord, how we want to honor you, Lord, in the public assemblies of our church. How we want to participate properly in and reverently in communion. Lord, how we want to order our church appropriately, how we want to recognize your chain of command in both our homes and in the church. Lord, I pray for the men tonight, Lord, that you'd help us to be loving heads of our home, that you'd help us to be responsible heads of the church. And Lord, I pray for the women tonight, that they would look to you to lead them through the men in their life through the leadership that you've ordained. Lord, I pray that you'd help men lead lovingly. I pray that you'll help women submit willingly. Lord, I pray that we could be a testimony of the work of Jesus Christ and of the relationship that you've established with your church. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you bless us all tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.